Hello, what's up, what's up? Welcome to the One Inch Barrier. I am your host, one Carlos Ohana, and I hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy and staying at home. And a quick reminder that we're done with the 2017 retrospective where we looked at the films nominated for foreign language film alongside The Fantastic Woman. So we've done re um, reviews of The Insult, Loveless, On Body and Soul, and The Square. They're available in full on Patreon. And I get ready because we're starting 2016 soon. Um, those films were going to be The Land of Mine, A Man Called Ove, Tana, and Tony Erdman. All right, so we've reached like the halfway point of this season. We're going to talk about the film that won Best Foreign Language Film at the 38th Academy Awards. That film is The Shop on Main Street, or in its original language, of Chudakotze, co-written and directed by Jan Kadar and Elmar Kloss. This was... This was Czechoslovakia's first win in nomination. So for a quick summary, this is about a carpenter named Tono who is assigned to be an Aryan controller. So he has to pick um, a property or a business to seize or to control from a Jew. And he picks the sewing supply store of Rosalia uh, Lotmanova, um, a bit of a senile Jewish old woman who um, doesn't understand what is happening around her. And because of that, Tono starts to kind of protect her from what is happening and try to pretend that everything is like um, as it is until the time when the persecution of the Jews starts to escalate and it he is now challenged on how or would he even continue to protect um Mrs. Lautman from what is really happening outside, the truth of what is happening outside. So that is a quick summary of the shop on Main Street. So our guest for this episode is from the United States. Um, you have heard him in a 1989 episode where we talked about Cinema Paradiso and the films of that year. He's the founder and editor of the film Experience. Heart, heart. Um, welcome back. Please welcome Nathaniel Rogers. Hi, Nathaniel. Thank you so much for coming back. Hello, Juan Carlos. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, any any excuse they have to watch movies, I love. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> I'm like finding ways to not watch films at this point, but I'm so happy. I'm excited to have you back. You know, with the Chinema Paradiso was a good conversation, um, and this one is also like a, a an exciting year. It is. It was like the movies that I I wasn't able to screen every nominee, but the movies I screened were all all very good. Yeah, so I am excited to not just discuss the shop on Main Street, but also the films from this year. Um, can you tell our listeners where can they find you on the internet? I am at, at Nathaniel R on Twitter, and my website is thefilmexperience.net. That website is so cool. I don't know. But anyway. Um, well, you should know you're part of it. Oh my gosh, <laughs> maybe that's why. Wow. All right. So um, the shop on Main Street. Um, oh, is this the first time you watched The Shop on Main Street? It is, yes. Oh, okay. So um, coming in, you know, um, was a winner of foreign language film. And then like us at Best Actress fans, uh, the lead actress got nominated for Best Actress. So I think that's a kind of like interesting thing coming in. But um I, I just want to hear what your, or your initial thoughts. What did you think of The Shop on Main Street? Uh, loved. 
hate to be so succinct. Um, I found it really fascinating. I when I heard the subject matter, I was like, oh, you know, this is going to be you know heavy drama and very traditional uh, foreign language film winner. You know, Holocaust involved, World War II. But I was surprised right from the first frames, you know, the music's like really jaunty and it has this weird comic tone. And it takes it a, a long time to actually explain to you what's happening. Like it, it's setting the table of life in that village as opposed to the broader world, which I thought was really smart. Um, so you're getting the sense of, you know, how those people experienced the war, which is that they didn't, you know, it's all sort of like in the air culturally, this sort of persecution of Jews that they're not really like, none of them are really obsessed with, but they're all sort of absorbing, absorbing it. Like some of the village people are friends with the Jewish people and some are really prejudiced. And it just, it really gets at the complicity of like doing nothing and how people just, people are part of their eras and part of their environments. And I, I was just very surprised from the beginning. And then all the stuff about the war and the Holocaust and the persecution of, of Jews and, you know, the pogroms and all that stuff comes barreling at you in the movie second half, essentially. So I, w I was very impressed with it. Like the screenplay is great, like the buildup, the tone is really interesting. I hope you loved it too. Not there. Um, I, I think, uh, yeah. Uh, when when I when I read about the shop on Main Street, it feels like um that obvious tragic. It, the tragedy would be the tone of the story. Um, but then I was also surprised. I think in the first thirty minutes, because at the first thirty minutes, we're just following actually Tono. So maybe that affects the tone that um, that, that starts the film because, it, like I said, I I I wasn't sure. But like, is this some, um, you know, the kind of drama with evident uh, elements of humor, but doesn't necessarily qualify as comedy? It has a certain lightheartedness. Mm -hmm. So with that coming in, um, and then with the character of Mrs. Lautman entering like thirty minutes in. I wasn't sure on where would it go, um, but so in your case, you were fascinated right at the beginning. For me, it was more of a slow burn. Mm -hmm. Like I was waiting and waiting. Maybe I was waiting for Ida Kamitska to come in, but I was like waiting and waiting to see how this would unfold because it feels like very matter of fact and very almost um, slice of life in a way, but it always points towards or like um, foreshadows something, but not in the most obvious of ways. And then you go with the ride and you see the relationships unfold. And then um, it goes into a direction that almost feels inevitable. And yet when you look at the beginning, it, it, it's, it, it, it has this, uh, very wide journey from from start to end in terms of like how we feel about the storytelling that's why even if it it is the logical ending it still surprised me 
and I don't usually use this term, but kind of corners me emotionally mm. and leaves a huge impact by the end. I, 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 yeah, I, I, how, how do you feel about how it kind of like traversed that um, tone of, you know, that, that lightheartedness and how it slowly morphs into something else and how did it affect your experience watching it? Well, that's what I thought was so brilliant about it is that it, it's, it leads you to believe it's sort of like a tragic comedy. Well, it is a tragic comedy essentially because like it's very funny for like the first half. Um, but I loved that it sort of replicated. Um, we're in this era now where everybody, you know, is supposed to be on the same page and like you're, you know, I, I don't want to use woke as a prerogative, as a derogative, but like this era of like everybody's trying to like get everybody to be thinking on the same page in terms of you know human value and human rights and all that but I love what I loved about this is it shows how a lot of like culturally specific things and regions and time periods like aren't aren't as woke and it can take like these horrible things to happen for to wake people up and I loved that it's that that's sort of what Tono, um, played by Joseph Kroner, is going through. He's it's this sort of awakening because he he doesn't even understand what he's feeling, which I found so fascinating. Like his protection of of the Jewish widow that he's like the controller of. I mean, the language is so wrong. Yeah, <laughs> controller of her because she's Jewish, and even though she's run the shop for decades, she's not capable now it needs to be an Aryan man um so it's all very offensive but the fact that he wakes up to how offensive it is but he can't quite process why he's so upset I thought was really fascinating and I especially loved when his wife got very sort of um anti-semitic and he in this one scene he slaps her because she's basically reducing the widow to just like his treasury and like totally robbing her of humanity just in the way she talks. And he's overcome with this sort of anger at his wife, but he doesn't even know why he's that upset. So I found that really fascinating, that arc. And I don't, well, I guess we can, spoilers, it's 1965, right? So there, there's this, or, or can we not go there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, go. What is the expiration for spoilers? <laughs> go ahead no there's a scene where like very very late in the movie this really bold camera work where the camera keeps following him and he's like a, he's not talking to the camera but he looks directly into the camera lens like several times in one scene and it's like it's a really unsubtle but really commanding section of the movie where he's trying to get away from the guilt and the camera keeps indicting him, you know? And he's like, realize, like, it's this statement about how complicit he is in the persecution of the Jews, even though he's ostensibly trying to hide her and protect her, he's part of the whole system that's robbing her of her humanity. And so he keeps trying to get away from the camera. He keeps leaving the room and the camera follows him right to his face and he's looking at the camera and then he gets ashamed and runs away from the camera and the camera follows him again. I mean, it's very non-realistic and I loved it yeah oh my gosh I mean I just want to get I, mean, I, 
I have something to say about that moment that you said. I just want to get back to um, what you said a while ago about, you know, I think we've come to this, like you said, this point in time where I think the consciousness that we're trying to strike in terms of like how we deal with a lot of like issues is starting for other people are starting to affect how we tell stories. Yes. Uh-huh. In a way that we are trying to uh, limit storytellers that if this is your topic, this is the only tone you could use. Otherwise, it would be disrespective or it would be inconsiderate of the context or whatever. But with a shop on Main Street, w- with its um, choice to have these moments of not explicit levity, but just like, you know, the moments of uh, human life that doesn't necessarily fit one tone for the story but yeah. is honest yeah to the experience I, I i i i love it when um films like this and, and with this case um i think it's kind of adventurous actually it's kind of exciting when you see films not necessarily you know n- not feeling the need to adhere to one just like tone of storytelling and yet it still remains honest i think that's exciting i think that's more honest in terms of like telling life um but i think the film also shows that you can play around with the tone without sacrificing the integrity of the storytelling and the seriousness in which you tackle the gravity of um what the story actually is because it is about the imminent extermination of the Jews in this society and it trickles down to the most personal of um, stories with with a, um, an inept carpenter who was almost kind of forced in to take over the shop just for whatever um, but yeah I think that is um, such a, an admirable way to tell the story because it doesn't shy away from how messy it is kind of in these kinds of stories. And with that moment, I said, I am, <laughs> I am so excited with that moment because it's such a jump. Um, it's, it's jarring and yet it makes so much sense. And I loved how you explained it because when I was watching it, I don't know what it means, but it feels right. Yeah. And it's so emotionally, not correct, but like, it it's it it visualizes a headspace that how can you translate when it's so internal what's happening to him at that moment is so it's it's internal turmoil i mean there are ways to tell it more traditionally and how can you show it yeah but it is such an adventurous choice again it goes back to it's not what i'm expecting i don't I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm not sure if it definitely clicks, but it feels honest and it's 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 I think it's audacious to go oh, into that direction. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And what I like about it is even the choices that people make that are um good and that are easy to view as moral choices, you know, in our current uh more enlightened state, if you will feel almost accidental like in the same way that people's bad choices 
when your whole environment is telling you one thing and you just go along with it, you don't really think it through. That's, that's the thing with a lot of the complicity of these evil things that have happened in the world is most people do not investigate every part of what's going on in, in around them. They just live their lives, right? So I loved that that was how they approach both the good decisions he makes and the bad decisions he makes. And there's this little thing that it's almost not, like a lesser movie would have made a much bigger deal about this, but one of the neighbor boys, one of the Jewish boys in the movie that he's sort of friendly with, you only really see him, he talks to him through the window of, of the back of the shop sometimes. So he's this like boy that you've seen several times in the movie and he's missing for the like the last half hour of the movie when they're, you know, collecting the Jews to take them off to the concentration camps. And so he's kind of, he's worried about the boy, but it, the boy is not the focus of any of the scenes. And there's this brief thing where you see the boy being taken in by one of the one of the non-Jewish people who's clearly hiding the boy and going to pretend that that boy is one of her sons. But it's just it's sort of in the background, and he notices it, and he's sort of relieved that the that oh the boy didn't get taken. But it, but it's so like they don't underline it or anything, and it's just like, was that woman thinking through the persecution, or was she was she just thinking, oh, this little boy who plays with my friends, he, they're gonna kill him. So it's like people make these decisions on a level that is not broad and societal; it's on their own personal lives, and on their tiny little communities. So I thought that was super effective. I just I really, really responded to the movie. I thought it was so good. And the first half, when it's not as serious, even that has lots of interesting things. There's this like long set piece where his brother-in-law comes to dinner, and it's like very like sort of a drunken comedy. And is this is when his brother is presenting to him the plot catalyst of you're going to take over the shop. But even that was like a different movie in a way because it was sort of like about sort of economic like socioeconomic problems and he sees this new job if you will which is this horrible racist thing as like his his lottery ticket you know so they all get really drunk because they're so happy but really he's not thinking through what it actually means that he's taking someone else's livelihood away from him. like i just thought the whole movie was really smart yeah, it is. And also one thing that um, you know, it kind of goes back to that, you know, how this that the scene with the kid was shot and with this one and how it almost is a drunken comedy. I, I mean, I was struggling to find words because I don't know what I'm seeing when I was yeah. watching the film. Um, but I think the perspective that the film takes in, in really following Tono benefits it because it um, is a highly specific experience. It's someone who is... I'm I'm not sure if he is just timid or inept or just doesn't really understand or doesn't care about what is going to happen. And is that complicity or is it whatever? And then he sort of becomes a reluctant hero that uh, is reluctant until the very end. Yeah. <laughs> and um, which I was on the edge of my seat i was more excited more than anything else because there are real human stakes in his story basically and how just the film is so clear about that and so um 
truthful to what is going through that there isn't really a need to, I, I don't know, maybe a lesser film would give him a moment to be a more sympathetic kind of person. But with right. this one, his, his uh, I don't know, awakening or realization or journey is uh, faithful to what he really is. And I think it comes back to how well-written the character and how well-written this film is, is that it doesn't compromise the real and honest stakes in, in terms of character, in terms of how they respond to their environment. It just gets those details so clearly that when we reach the, I don't know if snowball is a word, but like that inevitable yeah. um, uh, confrontation of uh, basically Mrs. Lauts, I'm so I Lotmanova is inside, all the other Jews are outside. He's literally in between. He he basically can save or condemn her mm -hmm. and you know basically bring her to her death. Before it reaches that, it is the, the path that the film takes in following him is so clear and so complex without necessarily um, showing off and how complex it is. It's matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And yet it understands that the small choices that he makes, that the characters make, builds up to something so morally complex that by the end, the dilemma is narratively justified and also as a human person watching other human persons yeah. suffering, it feels earned. It feels yeah. something that you can easily empathize to is that because how you got there is so clear and just fleshes out the humanity in this without resorting to just stale drama to make sure that this is a serious story that we're following no we get to understand the human experience because us human beings we shift from yeah. funny to not to drunk to sober to morally yeah. compromised to standing up for our rights to everything in between and the film takes that messy road maybe it's internalized in terms of tono or maybe on how the film focuses on a lot of things i mean it can focus on one thing like um him uh that that moment when uh mrs lockman doesn't want to open the shop because it's sabbath mm -hmm. but for other people to not um to not suspect he puts that we're you know we're stocking we're doing inventory right, right. yeah and then on the other scene we, we would see tono fall <laughs> from trying to get stocks uh in the shelf and yeah. uh, mrs lockman is like you don't know stupid or whatever but just like you know that so multifaceted on how it explores this kind of story. And I think season six of this podcast, too many Holocaust stories. I am starting to really give me something, <laughs> give me something new. And I am so surprised that a film from 1965 going backwards manages to surprise me in the storytelling of using the Holocaust as a background for complex character, um, human drama. Yeah. And I where you, you know, you were talking about in today's environment, we want everything to be, we're forcing storytellers to stay in a specific lane and tell it with a specific ideology and tone. Um, and I think what I worry about with this, like it may be all like morally correct, 
and politically correct and like and yes these are ideas that we all need to come to grips with and we all need to get behind but polemics and like and you know just it doesn't age i don't think it i don't think a lot of stuff from this year is going to age well because it's all like it's all like a political ideology and if you just do a polemic you know there's not a lot of like complexity so you know when when we get even more advanced in our thinking if we assume that the world goes forward that mm -hmm. going to age badly whereas something yeah. like this this felt so and I don't want to say modern, but it felt so timeless to me. Yeah. It could be any story about persecution and somebody's not realizing, not aware of their own privilege, and then put in this like morally suspect place where they're suddenly like, oh, what the fuck am I doing? Well, like, how am I contributing to this? Like, how do I stop this? How do I help this person who's sort of my friend? Like, it's a much more interesting and much more timely. It, it it can resonate, you know, you know, it'll, I, I'm sure it'll still work 20 years from now is what I'm saying. And it's already like, how long ago is 1965? <laughs> I don't, I'm not good at math. It's quite a long, you know, it's over 50 years ago. Um, it is, yeah. And it still feels like very, like, like it just really resonates still. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I'm watching a lot of like 40s Hollywood films recently and you know with the haste code um i'm dealing with a lot of like simplified morality in film. yeah yeah and um so that whatever i think it that makes it that makes even the most interesting of stories dated is that the the i don't know it's almost enforced that kind of morality but you know we as we as hopefully our storytelling in films and our human understanding in life gets more nuanced more complex I think these kinds of stories are actually the one that really is honest to how human nature yeah. really works. Mm -hmm. um, I remember um, this is a very political time in my country right now. Um, the son, the dictator's son, is coming to power. That dictator um, is responsible for like seventy thousand arrests. 30,000 tortures, 3,000 murders in him, the martial law here. And because of that, and I'm watching a film that is basically the rise of fascism in Slovakia at the time, it really made me reflective of where I stand as a person. And I think that is such a powerful um, thing that the film can manage is that it doesn't really try to uphold some um, I don't know what 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 humans should do in the moment. It just responds to um, what humans can do yeah. um, in the moment, and it terrifies me because because of what's happening right now. When I'm when I just watch it last night, um, and what is happening in my context as a person, it made me think of like, okay, right now maybe I am morally um politically awake, but I don't know. I actually don't know how I would respond maybe if the dictatorship is back. And I think that is a testament to how the film rings so true. And, you know, for a film that comes from the 60s, it just, I don't know, I, I, 
I felt such appreciation for a film that is this morally complex and makes me think of things in real life, which unfortunately, you know, this is a 1965 film telling a story of what happened in the 40s and it's still resonating with me in 2020s. What the fuck is happening? <laughs> But um, yeah, it is very resonant and uh, I am very thankful that the film almost helped me process what I'm feeling in terms of like, where am I as a person? Like, do am I as great a citizen as I am, as I think? Or would I flip when it comes? Would I be complicit? And and I, I'm seeing a lot of parallels with this one. Well, so self-indulgent, but you know, that, that kind of like relatability of the complex things that are happening in 2020, the, the moment where we're thinking of so many things now, or maybe looking back and it's already on screen in 65. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there's another, and what you're saying about like how complicated it is for people when they're living through it is like there's another character in the movie, I can't remember his name, um, who is like a friend of Tono and a friend of the Jewish widow, so he's very involved in them. But he get he's he's trying to do the right thing, but even he is not doing not really taking a moral high ground. Like the people aren't really speaking in that this is the way you should feel or whatever. He should. He's just another person just living his life. He just has a lot of Jewish friends and he is like sort of mediating between yeah. the new Aryan controllers of these Jewish owned businesses and the, and the Jews. So even he is complicit, even though he's very, very like anti-Jewish persecution, even he's complicit in a way because he's helping the system find ways to cope with what's going on. And then, and yet he, even though he's sort of trying, sort of doing the right thing, because he's like, you know, trying to protect them and make it easier for the, his Jewish friends, he, and he's not helped by his efforts because he gets labeled a Jew lover and gets paraded around town and beaten and all these like horrible things. Um, so it just shows you in these fascist states, like how dangerous it is for anyone, even any moral awakening is, is can be can pull the rug out from under you in your normal life let alone within a fascist state um it can really like it can kill you <laughs> you know doing the right thing can kill you um so yeah it's uh, yeah i don't have enough good things to say about this i'm so glad you invited me on and uh, so that i could watch this because Filling in the gaps in Oscar history, a lot of times, I'm not going to lie, even though I love doing it, a lot of times it's a chore. You'll get to a movie and you'll be like, oh, I can't believe people loved this at the time or whatever. Sometimes it's great fun, even if the movie's not wonderful, but occasionally you'll see a gem. You're like, oh my God, why have I not seen this before? And that was the case here. Yeah, I encounter those like, Oh, the things that I do for the Oscars. <laughs> like, <laughs> when you watch this, it's like, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> um, I mean, I just saw John of Arc, 48. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, what, with, with, with a character of, I think it's uh, Kushar. I don't know if, how that's pronounced. The, the friend of Tono and, um, and Mrs. Lawson. Oh, Kushar, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it is one of the, his, what happened, his fate is one of those plot points that are like the huge um, ball drops in the story that signals the shift that is about to happen in the last 30 minutes. Those 
powerful last minutes. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it is so remarkable because I think that character is someone who try, like, is, tries to do good. Yeah. But societies like this, and as shown in the film, show us that even the best intentioned people can be morally compromised yeah. or does those negotiations within themselves that they're not necessarily fighting for what's right, but they're fighting for what's right within certain bounds exactly. because they're yeah. still fighting for their own survival. And that's why I cannot blame Kushar for not really, uh, I don't know, pushing so hard because he was also um, um, caring about his own fate and he's just trying to negotiate the space rosalia uh mrs loudman him yeah. tono the, the the fascism that's rising mm -hmm. and, and even it's, yeah. even the peripheral characters like there's the town the town crier who's basically being replaced by technology because they're, yeah. they're building a loudspeaker yeah. <laughs> better to send their fascist messages um even even he who turns well i, I think he turns one of the jews in at one point i'm, I'm missing that I'm not remembering that plot point well, but even he is morally, you know, he's not all bad because he's he's also trying to save uh, Rosalia Blatmanova. Like, so he has he has friends that he's like, oh no, what's happening? You know, once even though he's part of it, he doesn't realize how it's snowballing. So I just really appreciated like. The complexity of showing how difficult it is for everyone in these yeah. in these situations. Yeah, and even in the in the lighter moments leading up to what is going to happen in the end, it's looking back, it's almost terrifying because you see how normal it is, and yet between those moments of normalcy like the fate of people are being made yeah um the smallest of of friendly conversations with neighbors um this uh the smallest of uh and and how ordinary can it get and um i don't know it it, it terrified me because it made me also think of my own like um like i think i know i'm a good person maybe but um, am I going to reach a point when I'm going to turn in someone that I actually want to care for? And, you know, and when you see those in extreme situations, you're almost like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. You know, I love him, him, <laughs> but with the shop on main street, because it's so, it's, it's depicted in an incremental way. You really don't know like, oh, oh yeah. Am I that really a big of a patriot, or am I gonna be survivalist when this time comes? And the fact that the film manages to sneak in those, you know, like th those things that you're mentioning in periphery, I just remember them while you're saying it. But I think it just goes to how complex and multi-layered it is because even the small characters are almost like in this, um, stuck in this. I don't know. Um, I don't know, domino effect of like hmm. one, one's turning in, one's right. And it's so interconnected because of the communal experience. Um, yeah, it, it's it's so vivid. And because of that, it just makes it 
more resonant. So even before it goes to the last 30 minutes when I really felt my heart just like I'm I'm uncomfortable right now. I should check my pressure, my blood pressure. Um you see it happening. And I think, you know, when 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 other people say that, you know, you know, fascism, it doesn't come in one snap. It's little things. And you know, people take it for granted because it, it is little things. But when you're seeing it in a two hour film and it's so clearly depicted in the smallest of ways, it's like Oh yeah, that's how it works. That's how they succeed. That's how we fail. Um, so we usually, I think, a lesser film would focus on the last thirty minutes, and you know, yeah, it's a survival stick. But for us, we get the context, which is more terrifying because it's more human. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, the only of, yeah. the only person who cuts right to the chase in that regard is a very very minor character, like one of the old Jewish elders, who we only meet once in like a barber shop yeah and he sort of explains to to the dumb non-jewish people what's you know i I think he said oh no no it's it's the barber it's not the elderly jewish man but anyway he explains the sort of the steps that they've taken to take the rights away from the jewish people yeah but it's the only part in the movie where you are sort of like handheld and even that people aren't really paying attention to him he's just it's just shown as like the context of the scene makes it feel like he's venting, which is how it would feel to those people who have privilege and don't and and who aren't being threatened with their lives. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's it comes across as he just venting mm-hmm. to them, and they're like, "Yeah, it sucks," type of thing. <laughs> but they're not really understanding the full implications of it. Um, yeah. Anyway, I feel like we're repeating ourselves now, but the movie's very good, and I highly suggest everybody watches it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Given it's such a human like story centered, what do you think of the two performances, especially like best actress Ida Kaminska, but you know even Joseph Cron. I think you already mentioned a little bit of him. Um, what uh, do you think of the two I, leads? Yeah, it's, uh, Joseph Cron, who plays Tono, um, okay. was amazing. I I thought he was the best performance in the movie, and I don't often feel that way with leading parts <laughs> yeah i often find the supporting performances more interesting but that's it, a really challenging role and you know he's game for all of it and it's really terrifically nuanced performance um ida kaminsky the weird thing is she was nominated back in the you know 60s before they changed the rules you could be your film could be eligible in multiple years when it came to foreign films so we see that happening a lot in the mid 60s especially um and so Ida Kaminsky was nominated the year after. Um, well, we'll get to this when we move on to the other films. But Sophia Loren was nominated the year before. So the, the, this one category in 1965 actually stretches across three Oscar years. Um, because you have Best Actress 1964, Best Foreign Film 1965, and then Best Actress 1966, all in one category. Um, so, I, but the interesting thing about Ida Kaminsky, she's good and everything, but it's it's almost like, and I'm not usually one to do this with supporting people nominated and best actress, but to me, she was a supporting actress. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, it's all about her, about him taking over her shop, but she's she's never really involved in the plot. It just sort of like happens around her. 
and she's a, like a little senile and it's so so focused on his experience and his journey um that she doesn't even show up for half an hour which doesn't always mean you're not the lead because like hi francis mcdormand and fargo totally the lead. Yeah. but like yeah i to me maybe i could see that now she would be campaigned to supporting and i think maybe that would be fine <laughs> But she was good, but I, it's not, uh, to me, the, the star is the star, Joseph Groner, amazing as Tony. Yeah, these two performances for me were so good. I mean, Joseph Groner, we've been mentioning on how he nails the beat of the character. With Ida Kaminska, it was, it was such a fascinating performance, maybe not because of what she's, um, uh, I don't know why I'm fascinated with her. I think it's just, it's, it's not dramatically showy yet. And, and I think majority of the performance is just her, you know, really demonstrating where she is as a person. She's a little bit uh, hard of hearing. A little she's bit, a little bit maybe a little bit senile. Yeah. Yeah. And just being so physically present and how it manifests that. And I've, I've read that she is a, a, mostly a stage actress. So maybe that, that presentness, that physicality, really, wow, theater experience. Mm. But um, I think, what re- and I I'm also thinking the same thing like eh, she's recording, but with I think it really comes down to the last thirty minutes of where it's really them, mm. and it's almost like a showdown. And I think we leave the film with I don't know her fate really fascinated me because I feel like I don't know her and yet it's not an issue to me. I feel like it's it's part of the the fascination of the performance i will never know everything about her and yet i i want to know her more probably yeah. that's what i was feeling and the ending kind of makes it that the fantasy sequence there at the end makes it makes it almost suggested that it's their story but yeah i would I agree with you yeah i'm i mean i'm, I'm torn, fine with yeah. her being best actress it's just it, it isn't a role where I would be upset if she was, if she had been campaigned and supported. Um, but um, the, the, my favorite part of her performance is in that last 30 minutes where she seems so unaware of what's happening in a way that the other Jewish characters are, they're far more aware than she is. And some of that is her age and some of that is the way people coddle her because everybody coddles her. Who knows her? Um, Kushar coddles her, and you know, oh no, I'll take care of everything for you. She doesn't. She never fully gets what's happening with Tono. Like she thinks he's her assistant rather than in charge of her. Um, and yet, in the very end, when it's sort of you see it breaking through, her her sort of, not her hard exterior, but her sort of senile and hard of hearing and she's not paying attention kind of exterior her like that shell around her you see it sort of you see the cracks finally showing up that she's like oh shit you know where she she has this harrowing close-up where she finally realizes what's happening um and that that part is was an amazing part of the performance yeah it's it's like at at that point you're dead i don't want her to know yes and yeah. I was like, don't go to the window. <laughs> yeah. And it, I think it's just like how clearly she demonstrates that that character. It's 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 
Ooh, it, it's a character that will haunt me probably in the yeah. next few days because of how um I don't know. I I will not even going to pretend why it works for me. It she just haunts me and I don't know. I think it's an odd it's one of those things maybe we would we would answer that a bit later but I just was so fascinated it made it in uh, in best actress because of how almost enigmatic it is. Mm-hmm. And not minimalist but it's just it's 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 wildly not what i would expect in best actress but i so get and almost want to cheer and support its presence in this category like yay let's get in that well if you um, can see what you're saying about this character is going to haunt you you know they had a whole year to sort of sit with this movie she was nominated the next year and it obviously had won the Oscar so like they were probably a lot of people were seeing it so they had a whole year to be haunted by this performance before it came time to vote again yeah um, and it almost yeah so that's probably how yeah I'm almost reminded of like how um, I forgot her name I'm so bad but the leading Kovadis Aida still haunts me to oh, yeah. day and uh, yeah anyway but yeah, um, I think my last word with this film is that I am so surprised on how sneaky it is. Mm. It's very sneaky and to very powerful effect. Um, I think I just started to love it more than we, than we, when we talked about it. So my love for this film also slow burn. Yeah. <laughs> the, the same way I felt about the film. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add about the shop on Main Street? The only other thing I'd like to say is it's so good that I even felt for the dog. And like, it's easy to feel for dogs, but I even felt like the poor dog doesn't even understand what's happening. <laughs> like, Tono has a dog that follows him around the whole movie. And even the dog seems as confused as the people do about like, what, what the fuck is happening around me? Um, which I, that's how good the movie is. Like, I felt like even the dog had, a, had an emotional journey. <laughs> yeah, it's... And a very emotional film, and not in a way that one, I, you know, I would, I would say it's emotional. But yeah, the shop on Main Street is, um, I think, yeah, it's a good. Blau for Elias, Mittelmann, Kinder, Peckler, the Hoof. All right, so let's talk about how the shop on Main Street, I don't know, got to the Oscars. It it screened in Cannes in May 20 of 1965 and then premiered in Czechoslovakia in October 8. And in Canada, it got like a special mention in acting 
obviously. And then speaking of New York Film Festival, it screened in September 9 in New York Film Festival. And it premiered in the United States in, in um, theatrical screenings in January 24. That's why it qualified in 1966 in the other categories at the Oscars. January, what? And then this was Czechoslovakia again, Czechoslovakia's first win the nomination. Um, and, and the only Slovakian film because it's uh, uh, unlike the other, the other Czechoslovakian nominees were, were Czech language. And this one's Slovak, Slovakian. Wow. So now yeah. it, it, one, once Czechoslovakia was no more, you know, now, now we have Czech Republic and Slovakia that both submit. Yeah. And Czech, and Czech Republic, I think the last time it got nominated was 2000, I think, with a while, Divided so. We Fall. And Slovakia never got nominated. Hasn't gotten nominated yet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But they never. They do have one winner if you go by language. <laughs> Which is shot by Mance Katie. Yeah. Um, in Golden Globe, we got nominated for Best Actress, Frida Kaminska. And then at New York Film Festival, and at New York Film Critics, it won for an English film. Um, like I said, um, you explained the, the, the two years that in 65, it, got nom- it won for an English film. And in, in 66, it was nominated for Best Actress. Um, okay. Um, I'm just going to mention like the other films nominated and we'll talk about what we've seen. Uh, the films nominated this year were Blood on the Land from Greece, Dear John from Sweden, Quieten from Japan, and Marriage Italian Style from Italy. Uh, you've seen two. Which one would you like to discuss first? Um, let's do Dear John. All right, Dear John from Sweden, starring Channing Tatum. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's <laughs> it's from Sweden. It's directed by Bo Winderberg. It's about um, I, I'm just gonna read IMDb. A young ship skipper arrives at a small port in Skuna. He has a failed marriage behind him and has no illusions about women and love. And then there he meets Anita, who is a single mother, and starts a very passionate relationship with her. Uh, ooh, what do you think of Dear John? I didn't know what to think at the first. I mean, I, I am, as people know, if they follow me, I'm really, I love Scandinavian cinema. So like my ancestry is Scandinavian. So like, I feel some, some I don't know, some, some weird connection. I, I want to see more of them. Um, and I, uh, I, 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 I didn't know what to think at first. And it was, to me, this was the slow burn because by the end, mm-hmm. I totally loved it. But can we mm-hmm. talk about the fact that it is horny as fuck, this movie? Yes, <laughs> good for them. <laughs> so, I mean, this is like the fascinating thing for me about this movie was was seeing that it, it's very 1960s in that, you know, because this is when cinema was finally like breaking through. And this international cinema, so they had different, different rules and different journey in that regard but the 1960s like the upheaval you know of everything in the 1960s um and cinema loosening up it was happening in america too um obviously it's different in in foreign countries um but you can totally see all the sort of like the new uh the new permissiveness 
yeah. of cinema in this movie. <laughs> Even oh, though yeah. they're they're very nervous about it. I, I one thing I thought was funny about it is like they're basically um for those who haven't seen it, which is I'm gonna assume everyone who's listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, hi everyone. <laughs> hi everyone. Um the the movie is like it's not strictly linear, which I found interesting also. I was like, this is kind of early for the not strictly linear. Um, because it's constantly jumping back and forth. It's like telling it's jumping back and forth between a day where they're basically spending in bed together and what what led them to be in this bed together for basically they're fucking for 24 hours, you know. Um so but but it <laughs> um and they uh, but they it's really funny because they they are always trying to obscure the fact that they're naked like the positions and they even do some of those things that we now joke about in cinema well like hiding his penis you know where he's standing behind things and it's just enough to cover his penis <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it is a horny movie there's clearly things going on just below the camera um there's intimations of that he's eating her out. There's all sorts of things going on in this movie. It was horny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it, this, okay, I agree with a word, it's a slow burn, but I feel like, you know, when to, it's a slow burn by the end, I loved it. I just didn't get there, but okay. it's a slow burn. Um, what I really admired is that, I think it was such, You, I love how you mentioned it, the 60s, because, I think it was a clash on showing and I mean, not just like nudity, but just actually sex yeah. showing as much and yet also restraining. Yeah. I was feeling that clash and in some way it it's not, it's not something that worked against the film for me. I think it added much tension. Yeah. Um, for a film that jumps back and forth, it was the thing that, um, moves uh, almost in a linear way that you know the, the intensity of the passion and it's not as if the, the sex scenes were intense but it's just that there is this rest almost restraint in it that continued to fascinate me because it's like seeing people having sex end yeah, and it just makes it more I'm not going to say relatable. It's just more realistic and not an idealized look at how people actually deal with sex. Um, not that I have a lot of basis about it, <laughs> but, um, sorry, mom, but it is, I don't know. It, 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 it felt honest. And I like I said, I don't have a lot of basis, but it feels the way it unfolded on how it conjunctures like actual romance to its um, relationship ups and downs to its phys the f to sex actually and how you physicalize um, the intensity of that relationship. I That is the one that hooked me throughout my a little bit of indifference but mostly a lot of admiration towards the film Yeah, is that attitude towards how it captures passion in romance, with or without a nudity, with or without a sex, but there's a lot of sex. Yeah. And nudity. Yeah. I mean, there's one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite nude swimming scenes ever okay. in this movie. Okay. <laughs> Let's hear it. Okay. No, I mean, just like he takes off his clothes and you see him 
I don't think they even show his butt when he's walking into the water. I can't remember. But you see him dive. And then underwater, it's like his nude body. So it reminded me a lot of the 1932 um, Tarzan the Ape Man. <laughs> or no, Tarzan and his mate, the 1934 one, which has this extremely risque but very sexy scene where they go nude, nude swimming together. Um, Maureen uh, Sullivan and Johnny Wiseman. Um, so in, in that it's like sort of naked and yet not naked because they're underwater and you know water obscures things but like but clearly the actors are naked type of thing um so like that scene was just so sexy because she she sees him and she goes and sits on the dock so that he can't get out of the water because she knows he's swimming naked so then he has to sort of try to hide while he gets dressed again she he knows she's right there so the movie had a lot of stuff like that where it was sort of playing with them looking at each other and them and them being turned on by each other but not actually consummating their relationship but it was an interesting friction as you're saying because you know they've already you, you know because at the very beginning of the movie they're in bed basically so you know they're going to have sex and they're going to spend like a whole night in bed <laughs> having sex but it's like it somehow creates all this tension anyways you're like how does because they, they're so stiff with each other in so many ways that you're like how are they actually going to end up in bed together so like i just really liked the journey but i'm also a huge huge fan of sex in movies i think there should be way more of it um just because i know that's a controversial take now with the, the new brutishness but um I just think it's so much a part of human existence that it's stupid that films pretend doesn't exist. That's my, I think there should be more movies like this. I think following you for more than a decade, I am aware of where you stand. I'm like, yes, I, I agree. It's, I think it's, it unveils so much about humans. Yeah. And it is something that should not, I mean, you know, I think there is this, there is this, uh, uh, connotation that when we explore sex in film, it it's it it is immediately lewd or something. I think you know you can we can explore sex in a, in a really genuine, honest way, and I I don't know. Um, yeah, with dear John, I I saw that I saw how you can use a lot of nudity, a lot of sex, and it actually tells a, a story that has um emotional beats that. Um, one could follow and see romance, see this romantic relationship through that. Um, that scene that you mentioned, I that's one of the more memorable scenes that I remember um, when I was watching this. Um, I'm so happy that this was restored so I could get closer. But um, this film is just um, something that I, I, I admire what it did and how it also like negotiated a lot of what is happening at the time and almost like moving forward and the attitude towards sex and film and also just being honest for I, I I didn't feel that any of the nudity was unnecessary or, or you know something like that it just it it felt like it it felt um it felt bearing but at the same time it doesn't feel like I'm voyeuristic about it and well I mean it's actually I, very it's actually very non-nude 
Yeah. Where you understand that they're naked the whole movie. They're basically yeah. naked for half the movie, but the camera work is so like, we're still not there in terms of permission yeah. <laughs> on the screen. So they're always like covered in sheets or or they do the the famous thing where they wrap themselves in sheets when they leave the bed, you know. Um, oh, yeah. um so it's not actually that naked, but you but it is horny enough that it feels like they're naked for the whole movie. Um but I I just thought it was like a I thought the character journeys were interesting and especially what you're saying about like sexual relations and, and sexual ideas around sex like that they had to navigate this stuff before the sexual revolution you know in a way because like there's this they're not explicit about it but there's there's a feeling that men are still very caught up and men and women are still very caught up in the madonna horror complex because one of the things about her character is that anita is that she's a mother so she has a child out of wedlock, which is, you know, not that big of a deal in Sweden compared to the U.S., but it's still considered, you know, not, not totally okay there um, at, at this time period. Um, and then she clearly wants to have sex with him, but she's holding back because she doesn't want him to think she's a whore. So, like, they're they're still navigating all that stuff. And then he has this weird speech toward the end to, to his only, what seems to be his only male friend. Um, yeah. <laughs> works with that um, where he's talking about like when you find the right woman he's sort of implying when you find the right right woman he's sort of implying if you find the right woman she'll be a whore in the bedroom type of thing <laughs> because he's like sort of trying to talk his friend out of it's basically he's saying both things can be true because his friend's like wait you didn't sleep with her type of thing because he's acting so much that he's in love with her so like there's this intimation that if he had had sex with her, he wouldn't be as moony eyed as he is about her. But the idea of the movie is that they actually fell in love over the school. I I thought it was a really good movie. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I just want to say that I think officially you broke the record for the most use of horny in this podcast. Oh, like, sorry. Thank you. No, no, no. I, I love it. I couldn't. Um, I mean, the movie is completely a sex movie. <laughs> yeah. And I think we that's a good segue to, I don't know if you could still call this film also horny or maybe not. Marriage Italian style from Surprise Italy. <laughs> um <laughs> It, it won a Golden Globe for Foreign Language Film. It was nominated for Actress and Actor. It was nominated for Best Actress in 64. Um, now, I think one of the weirder Oscar facts yeah. um, that usually happens in reverse. Yes. <laughs> foreign Language Film. And then, yeah. Uh, it's about um, a rich man who has a relationship with, uh, with a, a sex worker and post-World War II and how messy the relationship is um leading to um um a marriage that is a lot more complicated than um it what do you think um you know the thing with vittoria de sica who's the director and yeah sofia lorena marcello master master i can never say his name mastroianni <laughs> yeah um is that you can't really go wrong 
with that with, yeah, that, with that trio i know <laughs> i know it's like so even though there are things in the movie that are like yikes or whatever <laughs> about their relationship um and about like i mean what is this movie saying but at the same time they're the two of them are such great movie stars i mean they're like perfect movie stars and vittorio de Sico is such a great director i don't think this is as good as like yesterday today and tomorrow um but i really enjoyed it um and it, it would kind of surprise me how i thought it was going to be a lot funnier because it's billed as sort of like a dramedy um yeah. but it's actually quite serious in a yeah. way it just has a weird tonal relationship to what it's doing but and it gets more serious as it goes along you know where you realize more about her um in a way dear john and marriage italian style have this in common it's like they they keep taking you back to different parts of the story and making you see making you see things from the other person's perspective um so you know dear john does this very explicitly with its non-linear timeline where you see a scene and then you go back to the scene but now you're in the woman's shoes um whereas this and this is similar only it's not as explicit where it's sort of the first half i think is mostly marcello's perspective and then it sort of shifts to be about sophia's perspective um anyway um i you know it's more maybe it's style over substance but i love the style of these this this trio of filmmakers tasika loren and mascariano i just love them together I can't be that objective about it. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I agree. I mean, uh, at this point, I've seen a special day, sunflower, this one. I'm just loving it. Mm. I'm just loving this, uh, this Jessica Loren Mastoria. Antonio Mastroianni thing. So yeah, I really love it. And I, you know, in, in the moment I was kind of aware, you know, because when she was a, I think she started as a 17-year-old prostitute yeah. and how they, they showed her relationship with him. I was like, I, you know, what I was watching, I was like, I feel like I should be uh, reacting more to this in terms of like, hmm, in terms of what is really happening in the story, but yet. Loren Mastrani and the Sika are just selling the heck out of the story. Yeah. But just being um their fabulous selves. And that doesn't mean that it's just like a, a star vehicle. I think Loren and Mastrani are really good in this. Yes. Um I that's why I I, I appreciated on how they really tried to sell they sold the story of like a, a, um almost like decades spanning yeah. love hate relationship um and you know there is the talk of like the children that that, that um Mastroianni didn't recognize at first you had a talk of like um uh, having uh, having uh, the sex work and how it tarnishes her like legacy or personality moving forward in her life and how she kind of tries to um I don't know, rise from that. Um, I don't know. I think it really functions as a showcase for these two actors more than anything else. Yeah, 
Yeah. But I really enjoyed it. And I love also how it shifted from, oh, what do you think of it? Because you already mentioned something about a tonal shift. So what do you think of that? A little bit. Uh, there's a lot of like physical comedy and then yeah. it also goes into more serious conversations about like love and being a parent and well, war. Yeah, and, I just yeah. kind of felt bad for... <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I kind of felt bad for Italians <laughs> because it's called Marriage Italian Style. And I was like, oh, holy hell. I mean, it's a, it's a famous movie, but that title, it's just like, wow, because it is a pretty cynical movie about relationships in some ways, that how transactional relationships are. Um, yeah. Because, Big title. Yeah, because she's very, um, she, like she starts the movie as a sex worker, but essentially becomes his mistress. Like he pays for her life, but she's not a sex worker anymore, but she's still a sex worker for him, if you will. Yeah. Because she's the kept woman on the side type of thing. Um, and so it has th- those elements, um, but then it becomes more of like a melodrama in the second half um, when, when it deals with like what she's been keeping secret from him. But which leads to really like some really great scenes like the like I don't want to spoil this because it's a fairly easy to move movie for people to see and access because it's very famous and I really heartily suggest everybody watch it but the ending is chef's kiss the still frames of 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 Marcelo's Domina do me they call him in the movie do me do me um which looks like dummy on screen, which makes it like, <laughs> <laughs> um, it makes it extra funny because like he is sort of oblivious to a lot of what's happening in the movie. But um, there's a still there's a series of still frames where he's looking around that is hilarious, and it's like one of the very last shots of the movie, and it's just so perfect. Uh, but I don't want to give away what it's doing. But um, I just really really enjoyed it but i i did it was one of these movies where i was doing that thing you're talking about where you're like yikes maybe i shouldn't be enjoying <laughs> like there's a scene where sophia loren is uh he decides to drive her somewhere and she is a, she starts in a one of these like it's not a bus per se but one of these like cabs is jam-packed with people and she's going somewhere so because they can't open the door because there's so many people in it she has to go out the window to jump into Marcelo's car. And so as they're pushing her out the window, like people are copying feels because, you know, Sophia Loren, and she just laughs about it, about being like sexually assaulted. Like I'm thinking of 2021 mindset. She's basically sexually assaulted and laughs and she's like, I hope you got a good look. As she- <laughs> sure. Sure. But it's like, sure. but it's like this romantic comedy sort of effervescence as she does that that you know i think some people will be offended by this movie but it's just the star power is so high voltage that it yeah. covers <laughs> it covers a lot of the more questionable aspects of the movie it is and i really enjoyed the more comedic aspects of the film which actually the more problematic so maybe i'm problematic as a person. <laughs> um this this moment i think it's 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 halfway when uh <laughs> When Philomena is in her deathbed, yes. and then they send for the priest, and they're like, "Okay, it's just gonna be like the anointing of the dying," and right, then it's, right. it turns out to be a marriage. And then as soon as they get married, she 
gets well. And <laughs> I just love how, <laughs> how um, both of them, but especially Lorraine, how, how physical it is without necessarily going full slapstick. I think just them, I don't know if it's the Italian, it's a big word, but it's just like them being so present and how, you know, it, it, it sells the humor even more, which I think the setup is either, you know, it could do or die. That setup of like um, that, we're dying and then you know it, it's such an obvious like comedic setup that it can fail because it's so obvious and yet they sell it yeah yeah it, they really do a lot of selling yeah um this film um but the important thing yeah. is they do it like movie stars do it where it doesn't feel like heavy lifting yeah because they're just both so effortless with the camera you know but but i i, I do want to state this again if you haven't seen Sophia and Marcelo's movies together you really should because they're an amazing screen couple um but the best one I think is yesterday today and tomorrow which was right next episode which was right before this one yeah um, next episode uh yeah and that movie I think does the full range of what Marcelo and Sophia can do together because it's actually three separate stories um so it's this um which I think Kraydon is too, which we'll talk about in a minute, or four. Um, so yesterday, today, and tomorrow, it's like three short films, only it's all one feature, it's just like three different couples, and it's always Sophia and Marcelo. So you get a full range of what they can do together um, because it's different, they're playing different characters three times in the movie. Um, it's such a good movie. But anyway, so if you if you can only have time for one, watch yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But if you have extra time, watch Marriage Italian style. <laughs> I'm excited because I'll be seeing it in two days as of the time of recording. I am excited to see that. I've heard wonderful things. Um, okay, so um, Claudia's busy, but he has questions. Um, what's your favorite Lauren Mastroianni pairing? Well, I already. Oh, you just said I it. Just said it. You said yeah. it. I'm so sorry. Um, as of today, I I would go with a special day. Mm-hmm. Um, do you prefer the more dramatic outings or comedic? Outings? I I prefer the romantic dramedies. <laughs> okay. Um, which is, yeah, I guess the comedy. I like. I love yesterday. I'm obsessed with yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I've seen it multiple times. My favorite of those. Yeah, you're you're making me crave for it. No, I can't wait for two days. Um, maybe it's just the tragic person in me, but I really love a special day and what they did there. But yeah, I'm looking forward to having fun with foreign language films. So yesterday, today, and tomorrow, yes, I am in a few days. Um, what are your thoughts on the evolution of the Sika's career? How we went from raw neorealism to the poppy comedy of this pairing? Uh, I mean, it. To me, it just shows how talented he is because it's kind yeah. of like a William Wyler type situation where he can adapt to any genre and just always, always finds a way to tell the story in really vivid ways. I, I love him. I think he's a great director. And I love directors who have range like that. Um, so I think it's a beautiful journey and it. And I don't actually think it's that shocking that somebody who's good at neorealism 
would be good at sort of like movie star stuff because like if you really know if, if you really if you can pioneer something and be one of the influential voices of that as he was with neorealism you're obviously skilled at storytelling and filmmaking so i don't think it's that big of a jump personally to also be good at other genres like movie star vehicles and i think that's probably why they're so good because you know as we know from history there's a lot of bad movie star vehicles where the director is only relying on the magnetism of the stars and like the director doesn't have to do much but De Sica is always working like he's not letting the stars coast you know he always has a point of view like I think he's a great one yeah um I, two women falls into neorealism right um, I would say so but maybe because of I would say so, but maybe because of Sophia Loren and, and that it's such a. Um, oh, yeah, neorealism. It's more like non actors, right? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, the style is very neorealist in a way, but, but I think be, but because of her, her. Yeah. Oh, it's so funny. Like when I was a kid watching <laughs> old movies on TV, because they used to run on TV all the time, so when I first fell in love with Golden Age Hollywood, I never liked Sophia Loren. And it wasn't, Ooh. yeah, and it wasn't until I was a little older and started seeing Italian movies that I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, she's an amazing movie star. So there's something gets lost in translation for me with her yeah, uh, work yeah. in Hollywood pictures. Yeah. Um, I, first of all, like, uh, I, 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 that's the only basis, like two women, this one, and the things I've mentioned a while ago. Um, I really, appreciate and admire filmmakers that are versatile mm -hmm. in how they the stories that they can tell um as someone who you know um as someone who short I mean i've done short films but i feel like it within myself like i know that they're i'm i'm scared of doing a comedy because my comedy would be still dark and have that <laughs> very tragic sensibility of failure but with this one i i appreciate it and how for example how playful this one is and yet when i go to two women that snowballing tragedy was striking um i haven't seen bicycle thieves i am saving it for next season okay um uh, with the podcast but um it's wonderful yeah yeah i i should have seen it in film school i don't know how i graduated in film school i haven't seen it um yeah i, I don't know i i love it when filmmakers can do much more because oh can do more than one thing it doesn't mean that I know. I don't, I don't think. I don't, um. I don't know if it makes them better, but I think it's because certain stories needs certain skill sets. Yeah. And storytellers can even great storytellers can fail if it's not a fit. You know, and how they're attacking stories when, and with the Sika, what I'm seeing going backwards makes me more excited to see the raw neorealism that yeah. made him such a name. Um. This next question is almost like. The shop on Main Street and marriage Italian style. Why do you think Best Actress is the acting category with most non-English nominees? Uh, I have a theory about that, but it's not flattering to the Academy. Okay, are you going to expound on it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just preparing myself to get on my soapbox. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw. <laughs> um, it's a. 
it's kind of like I, I, this is not an original thought. I don't want to claim it. I can't, but I can't remember who said it. But it was, you know how like the Los Angeles Film Critics Association often gives best actress. They're sort of known for giving best actress to a foreign language performance. It's happened mm-hmm. very often in their history. I see. And somebody pointed out once they do that because they don't take best actress seriously as they do best actor and in other words like their choice in best actor this is a theory from one person i'm apologize i can't remember who it was their choice in best actor often feels like it's trying to influence the oscars because it's it's like somebody who might not be a shoe in but it's definitely firmly in the conversation type of thing whereas their choice for best actress is sometimes far left field like somebody who has absolutely no shot at whatever at American awards attention. And it's, and it's the disparity of those two categories with the Los Angeles film critics that shows that they don't have the same respect for actresses because they're not thinking of it in terms of like, I don't know, like it wasn't a fully formed plot. It was a tweet, I think. <laughs> but the mm-hmm. more I thought about it, the more I was like, oh, it's true. It's, it's the same way that the Academy like prefers stories about men. So mm-hmm. like best pictures, like so heavily male dominated male stories. And like you would often have like best actress categories where that's their only nomination. Yeah. And I think it's the same mindset. It's just like not taking women's films as seriously. So therefore there's more room to play. Yeah. There's, therefore there's more room for something that's not traditional or not mainstream or whatever, because they, they don't view it in the same way. They don't value it in the same way. That's my convoluted cynical theory because I love that there's foreign language performances nominated. So I don't want to say it's a bad thing. I just think that maybe the reason it happens is not good. Yeah, um, and I am. Yeah, I have one ahead. more thing, sorry, one more thing. So I think it's a similar thing to why, the, why young, young actresses get nominated or children even. But in the male categories, that doesn't happen because it's like, and it doesn't happen. It really feels like out of respect for male stars. Like we're not going to take one of their nominations away and give it to a child. You know, you know what I'm saying? Whereas that, ha- like, if if there's a child in the running for best actress or best supporting actress, she'll get nominated. So even though the performance might be worth it, I I have suspicions about why. It that's all I mean. that's that's my feeling. yeah um that's the that's the first time i heard that um my go-to answer which is i don't know is i don't know if it's cynical or is actually even being too kind to the academy is that i think historically speaking um i don't know when's the time period it kind of went well anyways um roles in hollywood for like vehicles for lead actresses are tend to have a certain scarcity that I don't know whether for good or bad reasons, the Academy tends to branch out and look for independent films or like exports, whether British or not, just to, you know, I think I remember that like, headline that uh, finally enough actresses nominated for best. I, I, is it a 1994? five Oscars uh, article that was released. I think it kind of um, 
connects to that in a way that since there isn't really a lot of choices, they tend to go out and explore. And I, we do, we certainly wouldn't know like how, for example, this year we got two. No, no, no. In 66, we got two. Yeah. Uh, uh, how far were they from Elizabeth Taylor, who probably was the runaway pick of the year? And, you know, in, in terms of like, what were the other actress nom- uh, contenders in conversation at the time? Um, we see a lot of like, um, like I said, if today Ida Kaminska would probably be campaigning supporting, um, a lot of best actress nominees would probably be campaigning supporting, but they were elevated, you know, for many reasons. But I think that's what I feel could probably be a factor. But I am sad to hear that, uh, the thing that you mentioned. About but but yeah. it's really the same thing as what you're saying because as yeah. you know cinephiles who watch a ton of movies there's always enough contenders for best actress yes so it's really it's like are there enough the, the question is always are there enough contenders within their very limited wheelhouse of what they like to look at yeah um, and in the case of best actress I think sometimes there's not because they aren't willing to look at genre films. And as we've seen in the last few years, horror has, like, especially in the last few years, best actress work in horror films has been out of this world. Oh my gosh, yeah. Lupita Nyong'o, Tony Collette, like, I mean... Florence uh, 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 Pugh? Yeah, Essie Davis and uh, Babadook. Uh, like, there's yeah. a ton in recent years, right? Yeah. They, they aren't willing to look at this. So, like... So then, like the, once you start crossing off performances that they aren't, that they won't even consider, then you start. Well, they have to pick something, and so why not a foreign language film with an incredible? This is not to discount any of the nominees. Oh yeah, it's just, no. it's just the wheelhouse and what they're willing to look at and what they value. Yeah, and since it's they, more of a yeah, yeah, and since they don't value genre work, you know, they value drama. Period, <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> then you have to look if you don't have enough mainstream Hollywood actresses doing it, uh, doing a dramatic role that's juicy, then then maybe you'll find them in the foreign films. Yeah, it's 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 more of a criticism to the ones that are actually like giving the awards because I think huh, I think recently I've been you know I you know you know when reading um film websites like um for years i've always come to believe that okay this is a weak year this is a this is not a good year never a week different actresses. Actresses. Never yeah i started to feel like <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean look look it just just look at the eligibility list and you'll i think you can get you know with what's there but it's just like like i said the taste the wheelhouse yeah, yeah you can that find, limits the choices i think you can find like 10 worthy contenders in just about any year yeah, from the from the eligibility list, it's just whether yeah. or not they're willing to watch those movies. Yeah. Um, like for example, I, I'm I'm in 1948 right now. I think I'm I've already watched like 45. Um, only one Best Actress nominee is in my five for now. It's just like there's so many interesting picks that yeah. were not even in their radar at all, but was eligible, and it's now up to the ones that are. Uh, making the choices to hopefully get out of the comfort zone, but 
you know. Mm, well, so, I, so in that year you're discussing, how many movies were eligible? It's either 350 plus or 400. Okay, so that's typical of what it is now, too. It's around 300 or 400, and you're decades earlier. So if we assume that that's been the case from very early on, that it's been 300 to 400 movies each year, there are enough worthy people in any category. That's my statement, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, I remember that. I think 2014 was the last heavily publicized like week year. I don't know if 2019 counts, but I think 2014, I really read a lot of articles saying, this is a weak year. Um, Julian, still Alice is still waiting, a distributor. <laughs> also, Jennifer Addison. And um, I oh, believe oh, it's the so... Cake, the cake year you're talking about. The cake year, the <laughs> still Alice year, the gone girl year. And I, I, I believed it. I believed that narrative that it was so weak, empty year for actresses like, compared to actor world all are in best picture contenders. But then I started going to eligibilities and like, oh my gosh, these, like, I don't know what you feel about the fault in our stars. Oh, no, no, you didn't like the performance of Shailene Woodley, right? No, I, I, I liked her in that. I just didn't feel like she was selling the, um, this is like a- Breathing? Yeah, the breathing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my issue with her performance. I was like, you, if you're playing somebody who's suffering from an illness, you have to also play the illness. Like, I thought she was very good at everything else, but she wasn't playing somebody who was ill. Um, but, like, that year had amazing people. It had, um, like, the women from Ida, which won yeah. Best Foreign Film, were amazing. Um, it had uh, uh, Keira Knightley and Begin Again was fabulous. Yeah. Um, Marion Cotillard twice. Scarlett, Marlon, Marion Cotillard twice. Julianne Moore twice. Um, yeah. Scarlett Johansson and Under the Skin, incredible. Um, yeah. Anne Dorval and Mommy, which yeah. was yeah, amazing. Um, Gugu and Bath the Raw and Beyond the Lights. There were like a, twice. Yeah. There were a lot of people that were really good that you had to look outside of that like tiny yeah. Oscar wheelhouse. Yeah, there you go. So it's it's a voter problem. Not really the it, the voter problem. No. Anyway, yeah, we kind of addressed it. Voter yeah. problem and media problem, because then the media doesn't, you know, there Perhaps was still narratives. Yeah, there was a little bit in 2014 of people complaining about Essie Davis and the Babadook, but it wasn't eligible because of some weird thing with the direct TV or something. Yeah. But still. Yeah. Not us. Every year is a gift for actors. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, when, when everyone says, like, it's a week year, I go to the film experience, like, no, this is my world, this is my reality, every year is actress year, well, but every I mean, year is year of the women. It's just week in general with the Oscars, because Best Actress is one of the worst lineups compared to what was actually available to them that year. They, I mean, they didn't go with Mike, uh, they didn't go with Jake Gyllenhaal for Nightcrawler, they didn't go with Ray Fiennes for Grand Budapest Hotel, they didn't go with David Oyelowo, for Selma, like they were just ignoring all these great things. I remember that actor race. It was yeah, yeah. It was a Michael Keaton and others for me. But um, yeah, going back to nineteen sixty four. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and another. It was a wonderful tangent to explore really that, and that's a podcast in itself. That problem, best actress thing. Um. All right. So there are two other nominees: Blood of the Land from Greece. It's about like two brothers. 
one brother comes home, it's like a prodigal son, and yet they have opposite views on how to treat their workers in their land. I found it to be very, I was surprised. I was in, was so engaged and interesting. I don't know their names, but I was so engaged. Um, I would have probably like, from the macho, like um, male-driven drama, but I think there's a lot, um, I think the fraternal drama is really strong. And it also crosses without the class and how they treat their workers and that difference and how it translates to violence. It is very entertaining. And then Kwaidan from Japan, which won special Drew Prize from Cannes. It's a collection of four Japanese folk tales with supernatural themes. Uh, um, I'm very, hmm. I just want to apologize to people listening. I really, really wanted to watch this movie. Because it's it's one of only like two horror films ever nominated in this category, um, the other being Pan's Labyrinth, which I consider a horror film. Maybe some wouldn't, um, and I just didn't get, I just I just didn't squeeze it in in time for our recording day. It's three hours. Three hours, two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> However, perfectly understandable. Did you love? Oh. Um, like I said, um, before we started recording, um, I, no, 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 I didn't say it, but I will say it later. Um, I really admire this film. It's, it's, it's the kind of film with, with a vision so bold with a world so distinct that it almost, it's, it's terrifyingly good. And it's not even, it's more of like a supernatural drama than like a horror. It's not really scary, but, um, the vision is, it, I, I can't comprehend how one could have a brain and make something like that. Um, it's almost, um, I'm jealous and I'm also terrified with a director because it's so like, I don't know, um, in terms of how, I don't know, visuals, sound, the confidence in telling um, supernatural themes with quietness, mm-hmm. the, the patience to follow stories um, with uh, a very decided pace in, you know, three hours. Um, I would admit that some things happened during that day, which may be not in the condition to fall in love with it. But um, this person that I was talking to in terms of like, all right, I immediately felt, I'm so sorry to quite on that I am not in the right headspace that I was watching it. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like I would love it and I should love this. I mean, I was feeling it in my gut, like I should be loving this. And by the end, I was like, this is three hours. And I didn't feel like any time was wasted. I I really value it. And I, I wish I had a time to rewatch it. Um, so that's my excuse. I really admire it. <laughs> um which tale from Quietan is your favorite? I think my favorite story was the second story. The what was the second story? The second story is uh, the woman of the snow. I don't know that that had the hook on me, but maybe also because Tatsuya Kadai is there. And then, um, oh, regarding the evolution of Japanese cinema, do you prefer the post-war golden age or the 60s vanguards? So maybe 50s would be like Ozu. And Kurosawa, and the sixties would be like Woman in the Dunes, or I I would just say about this question, I have not seen enough. Um, uh-huh, me too. <laughs> I love Kurosawa, um, but I I don't feel 
versed enough in Japanese cinema yeah. to answer that. Likewise, I feel like um, that's one of the things with this podcast. Like I'm going backwards, so that I would probably get to answer this near the end of the journey. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? How did I feel going backwards with this well, one? But and you're yeah. also you're also looking at it specifically from the Oscar angle, which yeah, which means since each cinema, since each country can only submit one movie each year, you some it depends on the country themselves. Some countries are really good about choosing movies that reflect what's happening in their cinema, and other countries are not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not us. <laughs> yeah, we suck. Um, yeah, uh, I, 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 I'm looking forward to answering this as we go back. But the 60s bangers with what I've seen quite on um what's the other one? I've also seen Funeral Parade of Roses. I don't know if it qualifies here. I want I'm gonna say I wasn't a fan of that. Oh really? Yeah, I know people love it. Um I just didn't I had issues with that. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I love it. Um I I, I mean I love that you know, you have issues with it because I, that enriches the conversation. Like why did, what, what yeah, I, mean, I, I wish whatever. I remembered it clearly enough to say, but yeah. I was so excited to see it. And it just, yeah. felt, I just didn't feel like it was this revolutionary thing people were selling it as. Okay. Get out. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, no, I think I've I just seen it recently for the 69 yeah. episode and I don't know if I love it. I don't know, but it's, it's something that I haven't seen before. So maybe yeah. that's the revolutionary thing. But <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, Japanese cinema is so exciting. And um, I am so fascinated that for some freaking reason, it's the only Asian cinema that's represented at the Oscars at this period. So strange. Yeah. I mean, it, like some of it is which countries are submitting because, you know, in this year, for example, um, I uh the only asian countries that were submitting were uh india and japan yeah so sometimes yeah, sometimes it's a matter of like you know it took certain countries a long time to start submitting but sometimes but but in general because i've browsed about this before on my and probably on this podcast as well as my um my own site asian cinema is a big blind spot with oscar they have trouble with it. I don't know why. I think, you know, like with all the talk of diversity and representation that the Oscars are hit with every year, I think one of the gaping holes or gaping problems that's not been yeah, addressed. Gaping holes, yeah. Is is their problems with Asian cinema? Because I think like if you're if you're really gonna talk about diversity within cinema and you talk about like the the regions of cinema that they constantly go back to in this category. It's always like Western Europe is their favorite thing in the world. Some of that, some of that is what's been submitted. Some of it is like those styles are are closer to Hollywood. Um, some of it, but some of it might be internalized racism. Who knows? Um, but but I really think that if they're really planning to address that, it's kind of embarrassing how little Asian cinema they've recognized in this category. Um, and I kind of wish that they would at least think about that when they appoint people to like be, you know, the executive committee for this, for this branch, for example. Like, maybe they need a few people who are like really obsessed over Asian cinema on that panel. Because like year in and 
I mean, for decades, it's been a problem other than the Japanese golden age where they were obsessed with Kurosawa. But I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, I'm sorry, to, these are my pet peeves, but like, I mean, how, how do China and Hong Kong have so few nominations? Think about how rich those cinemas are. And like, there's just nothing at the Oscars. It's ridiculous. Taiwan yeah, only I, have yeah. Ang Lee movies that have been recognized. It's just like, there's just, there's just issues. I think I've, I've written an article, I think um, about at a 2000, because that was the year of the Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. And um, of course, and then Wood for Love didn't get in. And I was looking at the other nominees like, what are we doing? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, as, aside from the other, um, aside from other stuff, I think, yeah, it's 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 a problem that maybe, maybe it's so internalized that they don't they don't even notice it anymore. <laughs> um, that should be addressed, hopefully, because um, because it's it's um it's it's not only missed opportunities for the countries basically but it's yeah. it's a missed opportunities for others to be more enriched with the different kinds of storytelling and stories exactly. that are available exactly like i mean people are talking a lot about like the underrepresentation of african cinema in film festivals which is true um but film festivals have been addressing that but people also complain about it with the oscars but if you look at the history of this category which you and i have both studied a lot more than most people <laughs> You know, a lot of it is which countries submit. And only until recently, there's like almost every year now, you'll see an African country submit and, and everybody, there'll be news articles, first time submitting. So like you can't, oh my nom- gosh, yeah. can't nominate countries if they aren't submitting. Yeah. So some of it is that problem, which is a separate problem than them seeing a movie and not nominating. But Asian, but but my point, my long-winded point is Asian cinema has been, most Asian countries have been submitting for a really long time. And yet they still don't get nominated. Yeah, from, from, I mean, the from Philippines a country that's never been yes. nominated. And they, they're like, I think, number two in most submissions without a nomination, something like that. Portugal is number one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Claudio Alves and I have been like talking like, well, which of our countries are going to get nominated first? And he, he was like, well, the Philippines are going to get nominated. No, I think it's Portugal because you're European. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we're just like making a bet. to like, which of our countries are going to get nominated? Um, I agree. I, 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 I mean, my country is a bad submitter. I mean, I should probably not say that if I'm wishing to be submitted one day. But um, I don't know. It, it's just a confluence of like prejudice and the preference in storytelling and and the um, technicalities and the choices yeah and and as you're saying the choices themselves because like the oscar does not get involved in the selection there's another thing people don't understand about this race um, the academy has nothing to do with what's submitted to them the only the only thing that they have to do in that process is is accepting countries asking to be a submitting country and they have to get involved in paperwork for that. But in terms of what the country itself submits, each country has a different way that they process what's going to be submitted. The Academy has no, no say on what they submit. So they so if a, if a country has a committee set up that's a bad committee with poor taste, then that country is going to suffer for it. Yes. 
I know. Or or if um, they have a yeah. or if they have a committee set up that's too political, like Brazil has been having this problem. Yeah. Where they're ignoring some of their biggest international critically acclaimed films because they're too political. You know, like they, you know, they were refused to even consider Aquarius in its year, which was such a phenomenal movie. And there were all these protests because they wouldn't, but that was a express expressly a political choice not to consider it. So like, you know, you have those issues with countries too, but Oscar's not involved in any of them. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I agree. And uh I I I forgot what I was gonna say, but yeah, there's so much happening in this category that you know every year year in year out it get it gets rid of as if it's news that you know um oscar nomination night why is port of the Palladian fire not in foreign language film like yeah i know the rules are um can be tinkered but as for now i think uh you know this is what's happening and i don't know it i it, this can't the existence of this category is kind of confounding because there's so much to cover and yet they can only do so much so they have to actually follow certain rules so that they could narrow it down yes but i don't think it's conclusive of what's best in the world because like i said it's so complicated like for example even in the selection process like for example in israel um the one that wins the ophir award gets submitted it's like an academy, I think, in um, yeah. Israel. Yeah. In in the in the Philippines, it's it's seven people. Yeah. Seven people picking, and and the choices and the reasoning that they give for the choices. You know, it's it's ugh, anyway that, but you know this category. <laughs> uh, I uh, I could write articles about like how they waste films that we submitted anyway. Nineteen sixty-four and nineteen sixty-five. <laughs> um, center Zen place. All right. So this year, um, there are other films also nominated for another category. It's like for example, Woman in the Dunes nominated for directing, but was nominated in sixty-four. I haven't seen it. Um, next episode. It's very good. Uh, thank you. I am excited because I heard that it's one of the nuttiest <laughs> inclusions in this category. <laughs> I look forward to nutty. Um. Casanova 70 from Italy was nominated for original screenplay and was nominated for, I think, or just original screenplay. I think it's also a Marcello Mastroianni thing, or I don't know, I forgot. Um, and then The Umbrellas of Cherbourg from France was nominated also for original screenplay and um, music score, substantially original, and scoring of music, adaptation, or treatment. Um, I don't know what happened. Um, it was nominated in 64, so again, the same year as yesterday, today, and tomorrow, Women in the Dunes and the Umbrellas of Cherbourg are going to be discussed there. So um, next episode will be Nutty as well. Big titles. Um, this year, there were only like 15 submissions. Oh, surprise. Um, first time was Hungary. Um, I've seen five others. Uh, Pierre Lufa from France uh, by... Uh, Jean-Luc Godard, uh, Gertrude from Denmark by Carl Theodor Dreyer, um, La Tietula from Spain, directed by Miguel Picasso, uh, Pajarito Gomez from Argentina, directed by Rodolfo Kuhn, and Sao Paulo Incorporated by Luis Sergio Person. 
Um, I think the biggest titles here. I think the biggest title is Pierre Le Fool. Yeah, yeah. Um. Okay, so my well, quick Gertrude, thought, Gertrude is yeah. famous too. Gertrude is famous too. Yeah, Gertrude is famous too. Um. So, uh, yeah. So this, I'm just gonna be quick in some of the titles here. Um. Pajarito Gomez from Argentina. I enjoy, it's about the career of a popular singer and how they crafted his image as a popular singer. I it was enjoyable. Um, Sao Paulo incorporated from Brazil. It's a little bit of a, I think it's a mixture of documentary filmmaking and narrative. It's about um, a middle class man in Sao Paulo in the automotive industry. I love this. I was su- surprised. I, I don't know if how you can message me if you want to watch it. Um, and then. Um, La Tia Tula from Spain. I would probably not have watched this, um, but I I saw this and I enjoyed this one. It's about it's about um, a mother died, so her sister came in to help the family of the mother. So husband, children, and the aunt. So Tia, tia means aunt, right? Aunt, yeah, yeah. Tia, yeah. Um, and then it becomes more complicated because. Their relationship kind of scandalizes the society because, like, oh, you're you're at home with the sister of your dead wife. So the the, the husband offered, like, so we can avoid a scandal, we should get married. Um, the setup is so melodramatic and yet it's so restrained. I I I really enjoyed this. It I really um maybe because it it resembles a little bit of <laughs> of the Filipino drama that I. I had this instant connection with it that I didn't expect. I was expecting it to be a big drama, but it, it was really held back and with a wonderful performance in the center. Um, Pero le, Pero le Fou from Jean-Luc Godard. It's about um, Piero who uh, meets with uh, a woman from the past and they go on the run. Have you seen this before? I have. I'm so embarrassed. I own the DVD and have not watched it. Okay. <laughs> I need to get on. I need to get on there. Um, what do you think of Godard as a filmmaker? I, I'm. I'm not a big Godard person. I have to admit. Um, I know. I know. I'm no. supposed to be, but I just. I'm just not a big Godard person. Me too. <laughs> but but mm-hmm. I haven't. I haven't seen the full filmography, so I shouldn't comment too much i just when i see his movies i don't tend to respond all that positively i don't it's not that oh i hate godard i just to me he's like from what i've seen at least he's one of the in the hall of the overrated like that conversation from manhattan (laughs) um have you seen weekend uh no um because uh, Claudia's question is, do you think France should have submitted Godard more often? Uh, which Godards have you seen? I Breathless? prefer not to talk about Godard okay. because I feel like not well-versed enough, which is why I've, I, I'm hesitant to say that I'm not a fan. I'm yeah. just, I just, I'm not naturally drawn to it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I can watch it and appreciate it, but I, I don't necessarily think they should have submitted him more. The weird thing with the Oscars and and um, Godard is that, you know, they became like, it's not like they nominated him during his life, but then they felt like they needed to give him an honorary, even though they knew he wouldn't show up. 
Mm-hmm. And yet their excuse for not giving an honorary for so many actors, so many brilliant actors they ignored, is that, oh, well, they won't show up. And then I'm so it's like, why is Godard different? Like, why does Gard get a Godard get a special exemption, but you won't honor Doris Day, for example, with an honorary because she has publicly stated that she wouldn't show up. So it's just like, anyway, I have complicated feelings about Godard. <laughs> but I'm, but yeah. I'm not sure. But my point is, my overarching point is I'm not actually sure Oscar would have ever responded to him. Yeah. Um they, they you know they can try to rewrite history with some of their honorary choices but you know they had opportunities to you know pay attention to him that they didn't take you know um yeah i've only also yeah i agree i've only seen a few um i should have probably seen more problem my problem i think like i said a while ago that's why i asked if you've seen weekend is that um, I've only seen a few Godards and I don't necessarily connect, but that's the thing. I, I haven't, um, I tried to watch, um, Goodbye to Language. I gave up. And then, um, uh, I've seen Weekend. Hated it. Um, and then that traumatized me to watch La Chinois. <laughs> and then uh, Masculo Femino, I gave up in, after 22 minutes. Um, Pero Le Fou is something that I, I I get it in terms of how it played with storytelling, but also I think, I don't know if France should have submitted Godard more often because regard, personally, I, I think Godard alienates me on a personal level, but also in terms of submitting, I don't think quality is just the factor coming in. It's also like, you know, as we talk about, like, would I think it's being redefined right now, but what would they go for? And I don't know if Godard being a person, I mean, in the Godard versus Truffaut feud, feud <laughs> I, I'm a more of a Truffaut person, but, um, it, you know, I think Godard's brand of, in my understanding, pushing the form, trying not to conform to the rules isn't necessarily something that the academy would have probably responded to that's what i'm saying but that's yeah they, they but can, it's a weird thing yeah. with their honorary that they were always obsessed with him but they weren't yeah. <laughs> they never nominated him for anything and it's not like he didn't have international successes yeah you know yeah it is um gertrude from denmark it's about a gertrude who ends her, her marriage with his husband to take a lover and then he also she also meets a past lover um, at the time, it was very divisive. Now it's considered one of the best of Carl Theodor Dreyer. Um, I should probably read a question um, from Claudia. He said, um, at Carlos Ohano, why don't you like Gertrude? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, it goes back to... The, how do I phrase this without sounding like an editor? Um... The film is the filmmaking is so decidedly itself. It's so singular that it's meant to be either you love it or you hate it. I don't necessarily hate it, but I think there's a part of me that thinks that I would probably appreciate it more later in my life if I make it in, later in my life. Uh, but that I don't know. Um, I had really admired in 
many arms length and I, I, I don't glue with it. And it's not, I don't think it's any, I don't think it's anything against the film. It's just me as a person and in my inclinations of like storytelling, but we'll see, maybe I'll meet this film somewhere down the line. I, I, aside from the question, he also messaged me personally. Like, I'm so sorry I disappointed you. <laughs> I, I didn't like Gertrude. <laughs> Two and a half stars. <laughs> Letterbox. <laughs> I'm I sorry. Just, I just find that so interesting, though, with Gertrude. Like, that that um, Dreyer, you know, he, like, he's famous for the silent era. Yeah. But then when it came to, you know, the sound era, he didn't really make very many movies. Just a few. So he was very active you know, in the silent era and then, you know, you get to the sound era and there's just like, you know, one or two a decade at most. This question is so silly, but what is his most famous work? Uh, the Passion of Joe Vargas is most famous. Oh! Yeah. That's him? Yeah. Good. Which is oh, one yeah. of the greatest movies of all time. I mean, it's brilliant. Completely brilliant. But like, you know, but he like, but you know, when when sound came in, like he, you know, there's like five movies. Yeah, maybe maybe it's the medium. Maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe it's also the age. I don't know the changing industry. I don't know what with him. Um, well, he was born I, in 1889, and Gertrude is you know 19 came out in 1964. In a in a yeah, or at least the festivals were 64. Um, because obviously for Oscar it was 65, but um, yeah, he just yeah. He just doesn't have that much of a presence in the sound era. Yeah, maybe that also that's a factor. Maybe that that's I was probably talking with age. Is that probably I would appreciate the very deliberate pacing if I get older. I don't know. Sorry, uh, but also like I am so ashamed that I asked that question that he made Passion of Joan of Arc. Um, I look forward hopefully to seeing that because like I said, I saw Joan of Arc by Ingrid Bergman recently. I'm like, oh my god, something <laughs> else. No, no, like trust the well, Passion of Joan of Arc is a fucking masterpiece. It's oh my gosh, it's amazing. Yeah, you're gonna get a code on the DVD of the Passion <laughs> of Joan of Arc. I'm sorry. Um, that this year. I, I don't know what happened this year, but there are just like two films that I probably should have seen. Uh, Intimate Lighting from Czechoslovakia. It's part of the Czech New Wave. It's about two musician friends and Red Beard from Japan by Akira Kurosawa. That so were not year. submitted. Maybe. Not submitted, yeah. Oh, think, um, yeah. Yeah. But starting to share before, I think it's, it's a doctor that he was looking forward to making money as a doctor, but then he was sent to a hospital in a remote village. Um, things happen in my life. That's why I was able to see them. Um, sorry. All right. So, uh, <laughs> given have this very colorful year in, I didn't expect a very colorful year in this category. Um, oh, so I think this sounds really redundant. I just want to confirm. Um, do you think the shop on Main Street is a deserving winner of this category? Oh, totally. I was so so expecting to be like, oh, it didn't deserve to win just because when I heard the plot, I'm embarrassed I've never seen it, but when I heard the plot, I was like, oh, typical winner. But it Beautiful. is great. It's great. Yeah. So it's um, Yeah. 
uh, it it really won me over by the end and uh it's almost like there is this um as the film ended i immediately thought of the beginning again because uh, it's like a re-examining of what happened and i think it's a great thing when a film gets to stay with you after its runtime and not always do we get it because there are some films that are really entertaining and really great but after you know we see a lot of I mean, we see a lot of films maybe you see a lot of films um sometimes great films like oh yeah i've seen it that was great but with this one i think of the images and i re- i remember mrs i say i remember her and i don't remember her name um mrs loudman and her journey and she's not even the central character of the story i remember her i remember tona's dilemma i remember the character's dilemma it's so haunting um do you have a ranking of like the three films that you've seen um i would probably go i don't know i mean marriage italian style and george john are kind of like marriage italian style is more entertaining but i think i prefer your john just because i think it's more of a complete artistic vision whereas marriage italian style is like it's so it's so charismatic and stylish but i'm not i'm just not sure that i would say it's great so i think i think they're very very similar in quality is what i want to say so i would probably go one i mean one for sure shop on main street and then a close two and three to dear john and marriage italian style. yeah um for me my five would be uh, dear john Uh, again five doesn't mean bad it, this is a really solid year for me yeah uh five is dear john uh four is blood on the land three is quite on which i think should have been higher um i was torn actually between marriage italian style and the shop on main street um because marriage italian style just had me the whole time and the shop on main street was this slow burn that um really just dev devastated me with a cumulative power at its at final 30 minutes i would give the edge to the shabon main street just because of how it stuck with me and its power um but if i'm being honest i would probably easily uh rewatching marriage italian style just because of how like uh it's a delicious vehicle for its two actors and the director um so i take value in both and um yeah so that's like the end with with the other nominees i, I didn't really enjoy Gertrude and Pierre Lefou, but the Tietula is really wonderful um it's considered one of the classics in spain so would you have, that. would you have replaced any of the five that you that were nominated with any of the other ones you saw That is a very interesting question, Mr. Rogers. Um, <laughs> I would have probably replaced Dear John and Blood on the Land with La Tia Tula and Sao Paulo Incorporated from Brazil. But, but again, this is a strong lineup for this. Strong year. Yeah. yeah. And e- even the films that I didn't love, like Pere Lefou and uh, Gertrude, I-, I see why they have the fandom. So. Yeah. Yay, people. Um, so having said that, um, oh, Nathaniel, thank you so much for joining me again. I was I, I was like, since you've come, come here for Cinema Paradiso, I was always looking forward to the next, and this was the next. Well, I hope um, we get to do one more. 
for the 50s. Oh, oh. <laughs> when, the, when the category began. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. But yeah, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. I'm not just saying this because, like, you know, family, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a pleasure to always catch up with you and talk about films, you know, the things that bring us together. Thank you so much. You know much. what? I think we should say one, one, one thing I want to end with, though which we barely touched on. Sophia Loren was nominated for Best Actress the year before. And I just want to say that Best Actress race is really underrated. It's Julie mm-hmm. Andrews, Mary Poppins, Anne Bancroft, The Pumpkin Eater, Debbie Reynolds, Unsinkable Molly Brown, Kim Stanley, Seance on a Wet Afternoon, and Sophia Loren. It's a strong lineup, I think. And, and I've only seen, yeah. A, a strong lineup and a, a wide variety of style within the performances oh, yeah. and films, which is always nice and pretty rare. You know, you've got a musical, yeah. you've got musicals in there, you've got comedy, you've got drama, intense drama, you've got melodrama. It's like a, it's like a, a mix. It's a good mix. Yeah, that's like the double-edged sword. Is that since, you know, with the, the Academy's problem with Best Actress, I think whether intentionally or not, there are years where you really get these creative lineups. Like, yeah. Ah. Um, but that's why I wasn't able to mention it because I've only seen two of the of the yeah. nominees that year. Uh, I only love one. <laughs> and it's Sophia Loren. Yeah. Okay. I haven't seen Mary Poppins for more than a decade. It's I so remember it's so not bad. feeling anything when I saw it, but I think that will ostracize me, but um, I'm looking well, forward to having the day with it. <laughs> and I, I have to say, because the least well-known of those movies, I think, is Seance on a West, Wet Afternoon. And it's she's great in it, Kim Stanley. It's a really intense you know, drama. She's great in it. So I think that's I a strong get... Best Actress lineup, too. I should get back to watching Best Actress. That was my first goal in life until, like, they this podcast but yeah again <laughs> i'm so happy to have you back and uh see you soon wow <laughs> this podcast again can you tell the listeners where can they find you uh, i'm nathaniel from the film experience.net and on twitter at at nathaniel r and i even have an instagram which i'm very bad at updating at uh for film experience just film experience um that's for the website and for me is nathaniel underscore tfe it really sucks having like not being able to get the name you want on social media. I want to be the same on every platform, but Nathaniel R. Really hard to get. Oh, only have a lot of better. Nathaniel R's in the world. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't have that problem. No one <laughs> wants my name. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Carlos Ahana, this podcast at One Inch Barry. This podcast is a little bit of everywhere. Again, the 2017 retrospective is all up on Patreon. So those episodes are, I think we're already like 15 bonus episodes total now. Oh my gosh. And then coming soon to 2016. I am excited. The guests are excited. They've been messaging me like, let's watch 2016. Not a direct quote. I just think they that's what they think. But um, yeah, again, I'm wishing you all well. And this is a goodbye for now. And together, let's break the one inch barrier. <laughs>